Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter, and owner of Crazy Chester Records. The theme song you just heard is performed by Wet Willie's Jimmy Hall and Funky Chester. The Crazy Chester Radio Hour is a weekly music talk podcast featuring an eclectic group of guests with musical hearts, minds, and souls. In many of the episodes, we'll dive deep into the rich history of music mecca muscle shows. My guest today is the Beehive Queen, Miss Christine Allman. Christine is a singer-songwriter and has been a vocalist with the Saturday Night Live Band for many years. She's also a soul music aficionada with a deep love for muscle shows. My guest today is Christine Allman. She's been a featured singer with the Saturday Night Live Band for 25 years and is also an artist in her own right and tours the country with our band Rebel Montez. So thank you for being my guest today. Andreas, it's a real pleasure as well as it's been such a pleasure to get to know you through the music scene in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Yeah, for me also, same, because uh, talking to you and, and just your vibrant love for Muscle Shoals music, and it's just like it's comes out of all of your pores, it's just beautiful. <laughs> And uh, obviously hearing you sing even, even more, but uh, we're certainly glad and fortunate to have you here every summer to, uh, to join us for HandyFest. Well, the pleasure is really mine, and um, to come back every year like it's the first time, which is really what it feels like to me every time I come back, and have different events going on every year here in one of the true cradles of American music uh, is a very, very inspiring for me as an artist and as a person. Yeah. Let's go back to the beginning. You were born in New York City. Yeah. But what was your initial, your first memory of music or the first impressions of, uh, you know, the what, what made you choose to become a music person? I was always attracted to rhythm and blues and soul, and then soul music from a very, very early age. It was really all I wanted to listen to. My father somehow brought me a Jackie Wilson record when I was really little. I'm not exactly sure how it happened, but um, I, I remember hearing it and thinking, wow, that's, that's for me, you know? And um, I always loved to sing. So it became really inspiring for me early on to sing a lot of these songs. Um, I guess I, my, I was always in rock and roll bands, but I always kind of tried to push the feel towards soul music. And then I began collecting. I began to become a record collector myself. And uh, in Connecticut, where I live, I live in Connecticut in New York, 
I discovered uh, a sh three shoe boxes one uh, day in a tag sale near my house out in the country in Connecticut for $5 each. For, so for some total of $15, I got this wonderful collection, which I still don't know why this person had it, but it was Gold Wax, the Gold Wax label, out of Memphis, Backbeat label, people like James Carr, O.V. Wright, and of course some Muscle Shoals artists as well. And it became the the beginning really of my very deep Southern Soul collection. Then when I was asked to join the Saturday Night Live band, they asked me to pick some songs and the vast majority of songs I picked turned out to be Muscle Shoals songs or Deep Southern Soul. So to this day, my book at Saturday Night Live consists of largely, you know, what they call the genre of Deep Southern Soul of which Muscle Shoals is probably the preeminent recording capital of that. Absolutely, and we will talk about that in a minute, a little yes. bit more too, but you, you made, if I research this right, uh, your first recording with a band called The, the Wrong Black Band. <laughs> Can you take us back to that a little bit, just kind of Oh yeah, great. My brother had a garage band and they needed a girl singer. They thought they needed a girl singer, so they asked me, um, and the first gig we ever played, I doubled as the go-go dancer. I got up on a, a desk in a youth center and did the frug or something in between while the band was playing. Too funny just to even think about it. But even then, we were really pushing toward, uh, toward blues in our, in our performances. We loved the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, a band called The Blues Project. And a, a, a producer named Bob Shad from New York City somehow learned about us and put us on his label which also on the label at the time was Big Brother and the Holding Company uh, and the Amboy Dukes with uh, Ted Nugent and Ultimate Spinach with Jeff Skunk Baxter. Those were the three bands. We were kind of the little baby band that was on that label. So, you know, right away, Shad, Bob Shad had, had done field recordings of Ray Charles. He was a real made guy in the jazz world and gave me a lot of records, gave me original vinyl records of Ruth Brown and Laverne Baker, uh, uh, Little Richard, uh, original, original pressings, and I, I have those records to this day. Uh, he was very influential, Bob Shad, in pushing me even further toward the world of rhythm and blues and soul. Yeah, how did that experience transition to the band Fancy, which eventually became the Scratch Band. We watched a huge popular uh, live band and you made records with yeah, that band too. Yeah. How, did, how did that happen? Well, it was kind of a progression. Some of the people, my brother transitioned into Fancy and then some of his friends uh, from, from the town we lived in, which was near New Haven, Connecticut. It still was kind of a garage band. Then we, we became associated with a recording studio in Connecticut and and there, there were some older musicians who decided to kind of attach themselves to Fancy, and they were really also in, in, enmeshed in, 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 in soul and, and R&B. And so they attached themselves to the early version of what became the Scratch Band, directly morphed out of this band Fancy. And those guys had a huge influence on me. One of them had been in a band called the Wild Weeds, which was the band that Big Al Anderson had in Connecticut. And so there was that joining of that, um, th those two groups together. Um, the Wild Weeds did, almost did nothing but R&B. 
which Al to this day still it's his first love to this day. So, so again, I, I would just say that I was encouraged, sort of surrounded by this artistic group that validated the fact that all I really wanted to listen to was R&B, and so that was really all I wanted, you know. So it just made it easier for me to move in that direction. And then those two guys left the scratch band. And eventually into the scratch band came a guitar player named George Smith, G.E. Smith. And he had moved to the New Haven, Connecticut area from Pennsylvania. And he became our guitar player. And there became my lifelong friendship and collaboration with G.E. Yeah, and around the same time you got to meet Andrew Oldham yes. too. And I interviewed John Tibbon earlier yeah. for my podcast, which that's come denominator. And another thing that the two of you have in common, you both overdubbed on some unreleased Rolling Stones masters. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Masters. Well, released, actually, for well, in my case. Were, yeah. Yeah, yeah, then they were released. John also is from New Haven, and John had a fanzine back in the day. John was a writer, John Tibbon, and now he's in Nashville. Yeah, and so into our world in the recording studio in Connecticut came Andrew Lou Goldham, who had moved to Westport, Connecticut. Um, with his first wife and uh, came into our world and started recording at the recording studio. Um, among the things we did were a series of Rolling Stones masters that later turned into an album called Metamorphosis and we overdubbed background vocals on those, I did, background vocals on those uh, those recordings and uh, they they came out, they were, they were released and Andrew also produced other other artists at that time and we ended up having a, a there was a label called Big Sound and John was somewhat influential in the beginnings of that label we had people on the label like Mick Farron and um, uh, there was some Alex Chilton overlap a guy named Van Duren who came up from Memphis Van was is a, a, a genius songwriter so um, that was a whole nother time when um, that was, I guess, a more rock and roll time, you know, in, in my life. Andrew is still one of my closest friends. He lives in Colombia now, South America, and um, continues to be a very close friend and um, amazing to work with him, obviously. I also, edited, I also edited one of the volumes of his autobiography called Two Stoned. And he has one of the most interesting radio shows ever. Yes, yes. <laughs> because he knows everything. and. Uh, you know, he would come over to our house, and the first thing he would go for was the vinyl collection, and the first things would be like the Bobby Blue Bland albums, you know, that was all he ever wanted to listen to. Because of the Rolling Stones, you know, a lot. let's face it, Andreas, a lot of what happened in America with soul music becoming known, the Rolling Stones recorded Arthur Alexander, of course they That's did. the Muscle Shoals connection. The right Muscle there. Shoals connection. And, and, and the Stones were hugely influential in pushing these songs into the minds of teenagers who never would have known about them. And in the case of someone like me, I would see, who is this guy, Arthur Alexander? Where, and then I would try to find out about him, and I would try to start collecting his records. My record collecting, some of it went backwards from the Stones. This is way before I ever met Andrew. So um, really a connection there as well. Yeah, and uh, just a little earlier, you mentioned Cheese Smith yes. as an early collaborator. Um, around that time, you also play, play with Paula Solo, the bass yes. player. Yes, Mickey Curry, the drummer, who's... Yes. 
been Brian Adams' drummer for all of his That's career right. and still That's is. Right. That's right. And when my brother left, Mickey, he recommended Mickey Curry. He said, there's this teenage kid from Guilford you should really listen to. And that's how Mickey came into the Scratch Band. Yeah. yeah. Some of those guys, and John, for a while, had a band called the Yankees. Too. That's right, the Yankees, yeah. And Paula Sola went to the same uh, high school in uh, Connecticut that my brother went to. So we knew Paul from, we knew Paul from there. Yeah. yeah. And especially G. Smith is the link to the Saturday Night Live that, band. Oh, yes, he Would is. Would you mind yes. kind of sharing how you ended up becoming a part of that <laughs> Huge institution. <laughs> well, I used to make mixtapes of Southern Soul, right? What else would I do? And I would send them around. And one of the people I would send them to was GE, of course, because I knew he would dig them. And, you know, there was only a small group of people that ever got these tapes. One day my phone rang, and it was uh, George, and he wanted to know if I was free a certain weekend. He had a gig out on Long Island, he told me. And if I was free, he needed a singer. And you know, and you know, Chris, we could take some of those songs from those tapes you've been sending me, and that's what we could do on the on the gig. I have somebody that can make charts. So, thankfully, Andreas, I was free. My life would certainly have been different if I'd had a gig and I'd had to turn him down. He didn't tell me what the gig was. Um, they, he said then he divulged that the band would be the Saturday Night Live band, and. Uh, could I come to New York for two days and rehearse and let's pick 10 or 12 songs and we'll do charts for those songs. So we did. And uh, Tell Mama was one of them. And uh, A Shell of a Woman by Doris Allen. He Made a Woman Out of Me, Early Betty LeVette. So sure, I went, still not knowing what the gigs were. Turns out there was a club date on Long Island. It's a wonderful club called the Stephen Talk House in the Hamptons. And the second night would be Lauren Michaels' wedding reception. That had not been divulged, but I was on the gig, and so now I knew at least what I was doing. We went out to this, uh, his estate in the Hamptons, Lauren's estate, where everyone in the world was assembled, Nicholson, uh, you know, De Niro, walking around the grounds of the estate. We played a couple of sets of this soul music that I had, you know, put forth. And then I thought, well, that's really, was lovely, but now it's over, and I was really kind of, um, felt down about it, you know. I went home to Connecticut, and the phone rang about a, a week later, and it was GE. And he said, uh, we, ha we came to the first show of the season in September on SNL, and Lauren had come walking across the studio and looked at the bandstand where the SNL band was and said to GE, where's the girl? And GE said, what do you mean, where's the girl? Where's the girl you had with you at the wedding? And GE said, well, I didn't think, I just thought she wanted her for the wedding. He said, no, she was great. Call her up, tell her to come next week. That's how I got the gig. Yeah, and, and Paul, was he in the band? Paul was in the band too, because already? that year, T-Bone Woke left. And George, a GE called me and said, Chris, I had a problem. T-Bone's not gonna come back. He's got other things he wants to do. Do you know anybody that reads? And Paul was, in the Scratch Band, Paul was known as the boss because after my brother left, Paul took on some of the leader activities in the Scratch Band. I said, well, the boss reads. He does? I said, yes, he does. And so he called Paul, and Paul, Paul came into the band right then. Yeah, would you mind sharing a little bit how a typical SNL week looks like for you? 
Sure. Um, the band isn't really that involved. Who's really involved are the musical directors, which at this point is are Lenny Pickin and Leon Pendarvis, and this wonderful writer, uh, Eli Brueggemann, who writes all the sketch music. So the three of them have offices, and they're there all week, and they interface with the writers as far as what music is going to be needed uh, for the show. And then we get a call maybe even Thursday night at midnight or something, saying, we need, you need to come in tomorrow. We're going to block this. We're going to block that. There's music. Or we're going to pre-record something in the booth. You know. And then, of course, the band, the band does a warm-up set. So, I mean, I'm involved. I'm the, the band's vocalist. But, and I also do all this other stuff. And then there are a couple of other singers that will come in and do this other music as well. Sometimes it's booth singing, what we call booth singing, which is live with the host or live with a sketch. Sometimes it's these little fake jingles we do that are pre-recorded. Um, it, it, and the band, of course, plays throughout the show. They play what they call bumpers, which are little bits of music. Um, or they sometimes play just behind singing where there is no other singing going on. They, this, a lot of the hosts are really interested in singing. They like to press the envelope. This year, Benedict Cumberbatch really wanted to do a musical opening, even though he said, I'm going to tell you right now, I can't sing. Well, it was incredibly funny. Like, he just jumped into the pool, you know, and we sang behind him, and it was, um, it was screamingly funny, because he was willing to go there, you know. So music is a big part of that show, and so many of the hosts, whether or not they can sing, they want to give it a shot for the comic value. Yeah. And you have... A very, an awesome like stage persona you're known as the beehive queen yes. and your style is very 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 unique now how did that come about <laughs> well um i had a band before christine Ullman and rebel montez i had a band called christine Ullman and the soul rockers and i was always a big fan of the girl groups and in particular the ronettes now, Ronnie Spector also lives in Connecticut now, so she's become a friend of mine, but at that time, she was just somebody that I emulated stylistically. In the scratch band, I used to wear a lot of vintage clothing, but I never teased my hair. But I would wear vintage prom gowns, vintage cocktail dresses, you know, things like that. S somehow I got the idea, I should try teasing my hair. I don't even know where it came from. I mean, you know, I could try teasing my hair, it could have kind of a Ronette's look. And, and, and you know what? People went nuts. It worked. And um, it became very identifiable. I did not start calling myself the Beehive Queen. I don't know who did, actually. Someone said to me one day, you know, this Beehive Queen thing, well, that's really great. And I said, well, I didn't even know what they were talking about. They said, why don't you go online and look up Beehive Queen? You're going to find out. And I, I did. And there I was, you know. So someone had gone ahead and started using that nickname for me, which really stuck. And uh, it's because, folks, I have this big blonde, you know, mop of teased hair. <laughs> and it's, um, yes, I guess it's pretty identifiable. Absolutely. And yeah. we wouldn't want to have it any other way. <laughs> no, no. And it goes along with, you know, it goes along with the, with the sensibility. You know, the songs I write really are not soul music songs. But, but as Dave Marsh has said, it, it's, he calls it contemporary rock R&B. Um, I, I think that's really a, maybe a great way to put it. You know, I mean, just like Bruce Springsteen is hugely influenced, you know, so am I. He and I have talked about this. And how does that sort of seep into your writing? Yeah, and I would love to touch on that a little bit too. You yeah. released a string of albums with your yeah. band, and there are a few covers in there, but mostly 
originally. Yes. yes. So how maybe how did you discover that voice? How how did he become a songwriter? Well, you know, uh, my producer, who's now is now deceased, Doc Cavalier, he original producer. He uh, pushed me to write. Uh, there were writers in the scratch band and I never wrote. I just sang their songs. He would push me to write and I was very lazy about it. He said, you know, you could probably be better than any of these guys. Well, as it turned out, I, I am and I, I was and I am and I'll be the first one to say it. But um, it was tortuous for me to learn how to do it. You know, I'm not a very good guitar player, although I do, now I'm better. But at the time I wasn't, I had to sort of tortuously pick things out on guitar and, but as time went on, I, I, I got better at it. And I really do think, Andreas, that a lot of that was the inspiration I drew from so many different streams of American music, uh, early, early country music, uh, gospel music, certainly, um, to a little extent bluegrass, um, rock and roll in its earliest forms, um, not, not, not to, not to, not to diverge so much, but the, the Sam Phillips connection in, in Muscle Shoals for me is hugely interesting because of Sun Records and my great appreciation for the early artists on Sun Records, the rockabilly guys, not to mention Presley. So it all just kind of, you know, was in my brain and somehow, and any songwriter would tell you this, you, you don't even know how it comes out, but somehow it, it mashed up all together and, and, and that, was, that was my style. You know, um, I, I do think I'm a little bit I'm a little bit more soul music influenced than, than Bruce Springsteen, but it really is kind of the same thing. Johnny Lyons, Southside Johnny. We've talked about this. You know, the the Jersey guys. They they have a fine appreciation. Um, my friend Roseanne Cash is now fascinated by the scene in the Shoals, and she will come down now from time to time, and she's fascinated by it. You know. Because we all heard it growing up, you know, and it's just how you, how you process it, I think, is different for each songwriter. Absolutely. And as I mentioned before, there are, besides your, your great originals, there's a few hand-picked covers on there. Yeah. And by knowing those songs, it tells a lot about you because it's not the regular, you know, yeah. you sent me, you know, just kind of. The obvious choice is it's f fairly obscure stuff, and I would just like to sing a one example out real quick because our friend Buzz Case and Matt Gaden wrote this song, yes. Cry Baby Cry, Cry for Baby Ben and Titus, which was a fairly obscure 45 yeah. uh, on the Elf label yes. that, that Buzz also owned That's at right. that point. And uh, right. he always told me the reason why they didn't quite make it is because they could not quite compete with the payola at that yeah, time. Yeah. They could not af af afford to get up the charts. But Christine Allman discovered that 45. Let me tell you that that 45 was in those three shoe boxes that day. Green elf label comes out of the box. I put it on the turntable and the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I have rarely heard a record that hit me as hard as Cry Baby Cry by Van and Titus did. So I played it for my friend Dion, and Dion also was like, wow, what is this, you know? And we immediately became enamored of this record. We couldn't get enough of it. So when it came time to record the, 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 the Deep End, the album The Deep End, I wanted to have Dion on the record, and I said, what about that Vanititis? And he immediately agreed. We would try to reproduce it. So Andy York, 
who is co-produces with me now and is John Mellencamp's guitarist. Andy York painstakingly produced that sort of ethereal organ intro on the original and and we we did our best. Catherine Russell sings the high descant harmony on there. But we just adore that record. And then as a side I began to hear about this guy Buzz Case and I was in Nashville a lot and people began to talk about him. I didn't know you then yet, but I knew about Buzz Kaysen before, uh, the writer and Mac. And, and, and I, I was fascinated because one of the things about that record is it ch it's in three different keys. It keeps changing keys. It's a very sophisticated arrangement and structure of that song. Then, <laughs> They really weren't named Van and Titus, they were the Brantley brothers. And George and Bill Brantley, and George Brantley came into my world. He lives in Knoxville, Tennessee, came into my world. In fact, he came to the Handy Festival a couple times. And um, so I met George. Then there was another record called She Shot a Hole in My Soul by a guy named Clifford Curry. And I found out Clifford Curry was in the same family of artists. And then I met you, and I found out that you knew and worked closely with Buzz Kaysen. And I visited Buzz last year, I think it was, at his studio in, in Nashville, finally. But Cry Baby Cry, folks, I will tell you, if you go on YouTube and listen to it by Van and Titus, you will not be sorry. It is one of the deepest ever records. And by any means, pick a copy of your version. Yes, and mine as well on the deep end, yeah. Um, but anyway, what a thrill to, to, meet, to meet George Brantley. <laughs> Do you have any idea, this record, how great this record is? Yeah. And you know, I'm sure Buzz would be the first one to tell you that a record like that, that it so, has so much voodoo and mojo in it that's just incredible. I, I'm sure when they made it, they, they, they didn't know it was going to turn out like that, you know. But yet it did. Sure that was in the shoebox. Yes, it was. Yeah, and Bill just came back to Nashville oh, did last year or so to cut a, cut a few sides with Clayton Ivy, who's a, another one of sure. our friends. So, sure, sure. Uh, so he's still in there too. But, Great uh, connection. Yeah. So besides doing your solo albums or your band albums, yeah, uh, you've also did other uh, recording projects in the studio, both here in, in, in Muscle Shoals and different areas too. But yeah. Some that I would like to sing aloud is, and I think G. E. Smith and Paul was part of some of that too. Yeah. It's like blues tribute versions. Yes. Of, of Nicolo Nick yeah. and different yeah. people. Yeah. Can you share something about the these yeah. recordings? The first person to ever uh, have have enough faith in me to put a record out was a guy named Randy Lavi. He's from Maine. He had a label called Deluge. He put out my first record, The Hard Way. And Randy then went to work for Telarc, and he did a lot of tribute records, um, which we, many of us that were at this recording studio in Connecticut at the time, participated. Um, Randy was a wonderful, is a wonderful friend, um, and and so there was a while there was a tribute to Holland Wolf, which is nominated for a Grammy. There's a, a Willie uh, Dixon one, which is also great. It gave me the chance to really collaborate with some blues, Kenny Neal, people like Kenny Neal, and. Uh, Sonny Landreth, people I wouldn't necessarily have had a chance to collaborate with. And then he made a record for Charlie Musselwhite called One Night in America, uh, the Los Lobos song, and uh, of which, among other things, featured a song called Trail of Tears, 
by Nick Lowe. And then we did a tribute to Nick Lowe. And um, Marshall Crenshaw and I recorded Cruel to be Kind. And those were all on the Telarc label at the time, which is now a subsidiary of Concord. And, um, and they were all re uh, produced by Randy Labby, and with some assistance uh, at the recording studio where, where I was, but some of them were recorded at, in, in other studios as well. And, uh, and then I met a wonderful uh, guitar player named Eddie Kirkland, the late Eddie Kirkland. Um, Eddie had played in uh, Otis Redding's band, uh, John Lee Hooker, he seconded John Lee Hooker and the early Detroit recordings, and Eddie and I worked together on a couple of records with Randy Labby. And he, Eddie was a real um, was a real original. So that was a, a way for me to really go come back full circle to my love of the blues. Yeah, and uh, well, I guess that was a few years earlier, shortly after you joined SNL. Yeah, you got to participate in a pretty amazing show too that <laughs> be became a record. And yes. I'm talking about the 30th anniversary celebration of Bob Dylan's career yeah. at Madison Square Garden. That's right, or Bob Fest, as it was known by Neil Young. And, and, and a fabulous week of rehearsals before that at SIR in New York, during which Bob's chosen band, which was Booker T and the MGs, with um, uh, Anton Figg and um, uh, the drummer, now Jim, Keltner. Jim Keltner on drums. Um, so we had a week of rehearsals where everyone just kind of cycled through, you know, Clapton and um, Neil and Roger McGuinn and, and Bob himself and uh, uh, just amazing, an amazing show, Johnny, and, uh, Johnny Cash, June Carter Cash. Uh, yeah, so many people. It was really the first of its kind to fe that wasn't a charity thing to feature so many artists coming to the fore to tribute one, which was Bob, and he was just kind of in the middle of it all, you know, and, um, oh yeah, that was an amazing week, one for the books for sure. Absolutely, yeah. and it's a great record. I, yeah. There's a, Clapton's version of Don't Think Twice, it's, yeah. right, it's maybe my f favorite version it was of, beautiful. of that song. And beautiful. my back page, it, yeah. I mean, it's just, it goes on and yeah. on, Stevie Wonder saying blowing it away. Yes. Yes, and it's out on Blu-ray now. It just came out on Blu-ray about a year and a half ago, I guess. And, uh, and, and it's been available on CD for a long time. Um, Booker T's a version, a pre-show version of You've Got to Serve Somebody, which of course has its Muscle Shoals roots as well, with Jerry Wexler being the original uh, producer with Bob Dylan. Booker T's version of that was, was really one of the high points of the show for me. I sang on it, and um, um, I think it's, I think it's uh, featured on the Blu-ray. Yeah. And you continue to be active in different, like all-star type of shows. Yes. A lot of them are charity charity projects yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of what I, I believe feature Ricky Bird. Yeah. And then that recently morphed into you being part of Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul. How did that come about? Well, I know Steven, of course, and he's another one who has a huge connection to soul music, you know. The Disciples of Soul, as you know, came out years years ago. There was a wonderful um, a album at the time with Dino Dinelli on drums. Um, so Stephen, of course, then went back into the fold of Bruce Springsteen. So that project kind of went away. But last year, it, it rose up again like the phoenix from the ashes with some of the original horn players. Uh, and uh, this uh, Rock and Roll for Children Foundation, which is out of uh, Maryland, and I serve on the board. There's a, a charity, big charity show every year. 
And next thing you know, Stephen is uh, tapped to be on the show. And he found out I was going to be around. And he called and he said, you think you'd come on and sing with me? You know, sure. You know, so I learned some of the songs I already knew. Because a few years ago, we had um, participated for Little Kids Rock in a gala where it was Stephen, Bruce, and Johnny, Southside Johnny, all got on stage and sang together, which was, if you're from New York, that was an iconic moment. So I knew some of his songs from there, but then he also had a whole new batch of songs that he'd written. And Stephen is an enormously interesting cat. Um, see, for me, it's like you and me. If we can sit down and talk soul music with somebody, that's gonna cement the friendship, and that's really what it's like with me and Stephen. So, yeah, he loves it, loves and it. So, we're into shows now. Yes. I would say four or five years ago, uh, you made your first journey down here, and. How did you, from being a fan, obviously, and a performer of that kind of music, how did you decide coming down? And how did, how did that happen? Completely by chance. I'm looking one day, I'm reading The New Yorker, which I'm a subscriber to, New Yorker magazine, and on the, on the margin, they have these little tiny ads that people take out. And there was an ad for somebody named Paul Thorne. And I was like, Paul Thorne? And it was clear that he was Southern. And I, what's his ad doing in The New Yorker? You know, so I went online and I found his Facebook page and I wrote to the Facebook page and somebody named Kim Stovall wrote back to me. Kim was and is his social media person and she's from the Shoals. And Kim wrote back and she said, wow, I know who you are. Um, um, uh, how do you want to connect with Paul? And I said, well, I, I don't know anything about him. I just saw this. Uh, I'm intellectually curious. You know, I saw this thing. And she mentioned that Paul was going to be playing in Muscle Shoals. And at the time, I was in New Orleans visiting. I took a cheapo flight, got a car in Birmingham, and just drove up here. And there was Paul Thorne at a club in Muscle Shoals, the one over near Counts Brothers, and uh, as part of the PJs, as part of the Handy Festival that year. But I didn't know anything about the Handy Festival. But it was summer, you know. So I, I go. I meet everybody that night. I met Kelvin Holly that night. I remember. And then I just kind of, the next day, kind of went home. And then Kim kept in touch with me. Next thing you know, she starts talking to me about this band, The Decoys. And again, I, I flew down, and I, Decoys had a, a, a gig in a sports bar. And I showed up, and I sang. I got up and sang, and Travis Womack showed up that night. He heard I was coming. He showed up. Andreas, I could not have been more grateful for the immediate welcome that I received if I tried. I mean, I, I was overwhelmed by it. So then the next thing that happened was Suzanne Bolton booked me into Swampers, and it was just supposed to be me and Kelvin, and all the decoys pretty much showed up. And Swampers was, you couldn't even get in. I mean, that's how crowded it was. And I was completely overwhelmed. And from there, it just kind of went on. The next year, I came down and did Muscle Shoals to Music Row with the decoys. And then, um, pretty close to that, I produced a tribute to Jerry Wexler. And things just kept happening. I, 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 I sat in with the Blind Boys of Alabama, as much because I knew their manager, who, by the way, is G.E. Smith's first cousin. How, could, how much is that you know, interlocking? Sat in with the Blind Boys, then Candy Staten asked me to walk on with her one year at the Headliner concert. In 2015, I was the Grand Marshal of the entire festival. And I still don't know 
quite how that just moved along the way it did, but it has been one of the beautiful things of my life. So many people down here, Donnie Fritz, Travis Womack, David Hood, Spooner Oldham, who I produced a tribute to this year for, uh, with uh, Tanya Holly at Cypress Moon. And I'm just, I, I, don't, I don't know, but, but my heart, I clearly, and you will understand this better than anybody, my heart clearly was always here. And then I just figured out my heart was here. You know yeah. what all I always keep saying is the music brought me here, yeah. but it's really the people who keep me yeah. here. Yeah, keep you here. They, it, this is the most amazing group of musicians. You know, interlocking, they play with each other, they have all these different side projects. I mean, it, the, and the studios are just amazing. And by the way, last week, I was you know able to go over to Wishbone, which now Wishbone has been bought and will be revitalized by our friend Billy Lawson, and this will be another, you know, revitalized studio in the area. To, to my friends in the business, I say, come down here and book studio time and stay. You know, you, you won't, you know, you just won't believe the vastness of the, 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 the different types of, of studio. They each have sort of their own flavor. They you know? do, and uh, I mean, the fact that there's like a handful or even more like great studios yeah. with a lot of history, that is just special. And I always try to emphasize that, yeah. you know, you, you might have seen the documentary and you yeah. kind of know what's obvious, but there's also so much more. Yeah. We got to work with Ray Reach at that, the that's right. too yeah. earlier this week. So. That's right, Ray Reach, and he's a, out of the jazz scene, but initially was a rock and roller out of Birmingham. and. Um, yeah, the, these these guys, and also so many of the you know the, the original Swampers with the you know Barry Beckett having passed, but the, you know they're all still on the scene. This year, I my friend Billy Amendola at who's the editor of Modern Drummer, uh, came forth with a beautiful uh, uh, article on Roger Hawkins and an, and a uh, uh, a web piece as well in the print issue and a web piece on Modern Drummer. Um, I work with David Hood. I work with Jimmy Johnson. I, I attributed Spooner on Monday night. You know, they're all still so much around. You know, Junior Low. They're they're just around, and and and, and they're very their very being around is is an amazing thing. Um, you know, I'll just say this. I mean, I know you live in Nashville. If you Nashville is is morphing into something that I'm I'm less than thrilled with right now because the history of Nashville is really going away so fast. Whereas here, it is honored. It is honored. You know, um, John Paul White in particular has stepped to the front to honor people like Donnie Fritz and you know revitalize their careers on a national on a national way you have done so much Andres if I may say just to spotlight these people who are so completely incredible and 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 out gigging they're out gigging every night you know yeah and I'm we're the same there I'm just like I just want to share this with everybody yeah. you know it's like you know we're here and we're fortunate to be able to collaborate with those yeah, people yeah. but I want like everybody in Switzerland or yes no around the world know about yeah. this around the and world check it out you know 
you know, there are good hotels here. There are some great restaurants. Let's let's talk tourism. You know, there's a, a this new um, this new gun room that just opened up. This, there's a boutique hotel here, folks. Um, it's it, it, it's it's wonderful. You know, the Quad Cities, Tuscumbia and Sheffield. Now their downtowns are being revitalized with shops and restaurants. Um, you know, it's it's very unique. Come, you know, come here. If you're thinking of going to some place like Clarksdale, that's great. And I, we've all been, and that's wonderful, you know, but get on the Natchez Trace, you know, come over here and uh, to come over here to the Shoals. Oh, the Natchez Trace itself is a great thing. If you want to, you know, you want to sure drive is. that, you'll go right by the Shoals and you'll go up to Nashville. Tom Hendricks Wall that, that kind of connects to Natchez Trace in this area yeah. too. It's, 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 uh, let's, let's talk, uh, you know, tourism here, but let's talk musical tourism. If you're a player, you need to really think about, you know, coming here. Absolutely. And yeah. we could go on forever. Yeah. Too. <laughs> I just would like to ask you one question though, to wrap sure. this up. Sure. What's next for you? Well, I'm, I'm finally making a new record. This was a long time since my last record. I'm making a record called the grown up thing. And there will be some collaborations, you know, down here. I think when I made the deep end, I I, I wasn't in, in, embedded here much at all, and now I'm, you know, so so embedded. So so yes, yeah, so so there'll be a new record, um, and and songwriting um, is something that I'm paying a lot more attention to this year. Just songwriting for the future as well, you know, um, and, and you know, I just I have it. I have a career that's been that's been very much a continuum. Um, I work with lots of different groups of musicians, including my incre my incredible band Rebel Montez. But they are based in the Northeast, but I have New York. I'm very deeply embedded in New Orleans, very deeply embedded in the Shoals, of course. And so, I intend to just keep you know feeding those connections. I'll be seeing my friend Ian Hunter when I come go back up to Connecticut. He's you know want to talk to him about um, doing something with him. Um, he's from Matahoopal, of course, and so he's another, but he's another, God, a huge soul music fan. I mean, the Brits, the Brits just love it in their soul, you know. So I think really just to continue what I'm doing, expand on what I'm doing, um, I, I, I never tire of speaking. Oh, oh, also, I'm involved now in something called The Sessions. The Sessions goes around the country to colleges, and it's uh, an all-star panel, and we talk about history, we talk about the business uh, to students in music schools and, and uh, all, all around. All, well, actually, we, we were at the Paris Conservatory earlier this year, all around the world. So to continue to spread the word about the river that is American popular song, and all of its tributaries, of which Muscle Shoals and its singing river is <laughs> certainly one, and, and maybe in, by far the closest to my heart. Yeah. Well, I wish you all the best of luck with all your future endeavors, and thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you, Andreas. Fabulous questions, and my love to the Shoals. This was the 10th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at the Florence, Alabama Visitor Center during the W.C. Handy Music Festival this summer. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. See you next week. <laughs>